Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Two titans of global economics joined us last week, the Bank of England's former governor Mervyn King and the Financial Times columnist Martin Wolf came together at Conway Hall in Holborn to discuss Martin's new book, The Crisis of Democratic Capitalism. The book explores how these two pillars of the modern world, democracy and capitalism, are coming apart with frightening consequences for our future. Now, what I propose to do in discussing with Martin his book is to start off with the symptoms and then the diagnosis and then finally the cure. Now, before Martin, I ask you why you wrote this terrific book. Can you give us the one-paragraph summary of the book? Well, I was asked this by Times Radio this morning. Since I had only five minutes for the interview, it really was just about a paragraph. So the one-paragraph summary of the book is, we are in a mess, and we are in a mess because our very complex and very original political and economic relations, something I hadn't fully realized before I started this work, is fracturing. And that is essentially because the uh, economic system as it is now run is not delivering to the people's of our countries, including all the high-income democracies, and notably including the US, what they want to feel satisfied with the way their lives are going and with the way their societies have been governed and led. And this has led them to profound disillusionment and skepticism, and that in turn leads them to entrust their future to scoundrels and worst, who then, in a vicious circle, make the problem worse and them angrier. And the relationship that has broken down is a reciprocal relationship between a democratic political system and a market economy, and which can be mutually supportive, and in some important ways is, but can also be mutually destructive, And that is, I think, now where we are. Excellent. Well, we're going to discuss aspects of this as we go on. But before we do that, let me ask you why you decided to write this book. Well, all the main books I've written have been in response to something that is going on. uh, Because I am, in the end, a journalist, and therefore I react to events but I try to set them in a broader context. So the globalization book you mentioned, which focuses on globalization and development, very important, was in reaction to many critics in the late 90s who argued that globalization was utterly destructive of developing countries and blighted and ruined their hopes. And that seemed to me quite a serious mistake. And I think what's happened since then in China and India, many other countries suggested that was wrong. The shifts and the shocks came out of the biggest financial crisis of my lifetime, and my reaction was, how did this happen? It was far much worse than I'd expected. I knew there were problems, big runs, and I wrote about them. So why did that happen? I, uh, so I had to sort out why it happened, and I spent a couple of years on this. And then, uh, well, it was really 2016. Donald Trump 
it was already obvious when I started thinking about this, was likely to be the presidential candidate for uh, uh, the Republican Party and might become president, quite unthinkable, three years before, two or three years before. Uh, in Britain, we were engulfed in the Brexit campaign, which was essentially assault on the elites, the establishment, uh, which went through and head. And we were seeing similar things, I could go through, in many other countries. And so I then said, well, it's pretty clear that our politics are turning against our existing establishment and elites very profoundly, one. Two, the characteristic this is taking is right-wing populism, which is itself rather surprising to me, rather than left-wing populism, though we had the Corbyn interlude in, in here. And some of it began to look to me <coughs> frighteningly similar to what had gone on, though there were many differences, which I discuss, in the 1920s and 30s, in a similar, not as bad, but a not, ours is nothing like as bad, but a similar period of economic and political disarray. So I wanted to sort out what was going on, why was this happening, what did it mean, and that's why I decided I had to write this book. Now, in the early chapters, you, you, there's a phrase that you use, you say that we're in a democratic recession. What... what do you mean by that? Well, it's not my phrase. So when I started thinking about this, obviously I know quite a bit of the economics. I knew about the financial crisis. I understood that that was devastating and we'll come to that, I'm sure. But I decided I had to start reading books by serious analysts of politics, democratic politics, populism and all the rest of it. So I did. And one of the leading scholars in the world on democracy is a man called Larry Diamond, who's a professor at Stanford. Uh, and he wrote a very seminal piece already, I think about 2008 or so, I can't remember the exact date, called The Democratic Recession. And his argument basically was that in the period between roughly 1980, slightly before that, and uh, the early 2000s, there was an enormous wave of democratization across the world. Obviously, in the, in the former Soviet Union and its empire, in, but also in many developing countries, notably in Africa, um, dictatorships were replaced by democracies. And it was becoming al obvious already in that early period that this was beginning to reverse. You could see important figures like Erdogan in Turkey, Orban in, uh, beginning to emerge in Hungary, but there were many others. And so he, he invented this phrase, the democratic recession. And uh, since then, there has been a great deal of research in the world's value surveys, which I cite, which are very interesting, other opinion polls, the, the documentation by Freedom House, which is an American think tank, which is probably the most authoritative, independent think tank looking at uh, the state of democracy in terms of basic legal principles, civil rights, freedom of association, integrity of electoral processes, all these obvious things. And Freedom House has documented uh, basically over the last 16 years, it's very consecutive and I've got some quotations, that essentially it's got worse all the time. Uh, and strikingly, given where they are, the country where they think it's got, 
in the developed world, where they think it's got worse most badly, is the US, of the, the big high-income countries. And obviously that's incredibly important because the US has been, and the bubble was in the middle of the 20th century, the decisive country in preserving uh, liberal democracy, one would have to say. So uh, that's the democratic recession, and it's not just in developing and emerging countries, though there's lots of that, but it's also very clearly in developed countries, and the US is one of the leaders. We're not as bad as the US, but we're not among the best anymore. So one of the interesting phenomena in the US is that to go back to the opinion polls that you mentioned, if you go back to the 50s and 60s, it, when people interviewed American citizens about the previous presidential election, the question was, did you vote for the successful candidate? And when people said no, the question was, well, what's your reaction to the winning candidate? And back in the 50s and 60s, the reaction was, I wish him well, because he's our president. Well, I don't think you'll get many people who say that today. Almost nobody. Yeah. Now, one of the pieces of research that's been done in the US by Rick Pildes in New York is that his analysis is that it used to be the case uh, when the two major parties were choosing their presidential candidates that the leaders of the party, people behind the scenes ensured that there were sensible, credible candidates. And the more they moved towards primaries, that is a so-called democratic approach, the worse it became. People moved to the extremes. And in this country, you've seen exactly the same thing, where Jeremy Corbyn for Labour and Liz Truss for the Conservatives were both elected by the party members, a smaller electorate than the primaries in the US. But nevertheless, this attempt of claim that things are becoming more democratic seems to have taken us in the wrong direction. That's a very deep question, which I do discuss in the book, um, along with many other controversial issues. So what does it mean to have a democratic system? Mm. And I have a lot of quite radical ideas there, which you might come to, uh, such as that we should have a, a house which is selected by a lot, if you want to know how <laughs> radical. I really believe this. But the... Um, the point is, how do we think political parties should fit into a democratic system? And the, uh, there are two views, I think, essentially on this, which is that political parties belong ultimately to their members, their organizations, their association that belong to their members. The members should choose who their party's uh, representatives are, and the representatives should uh, then choose the leaders. So that's the traditional way we worked. And that's not quite how America worked, because, but it was essentially active members of the party that chose the groups that then got together to caucus to choose the president. Um, and the, the throwing it open to a much wider group of members are, uh, in the U of supporters in the US through the primaries, and in the UK are throwing open the leadership to uh, from the House, the, the, the people who are actually in, elected to the House, into the membership of the parties, has in 
had a rather similar respect effects or tended to, which is they've given enormous weight to the most fanatical elements in our political communities. And the consequence of that, which is pretty visible, particularly when they're getting more fanatical over time, which is another factor, is that they, they naturally choose some pretty extreme people. And the most obvious example of that in our case was the choice by the Conservative membership of Liz Truss over Rishi Sunak, which crashed and burned, fortunately, relatively quickly. But it was pretty obvious to anyone who knew anything about this that this was going to be a disaster. Now, fortunately, in our system, we can get rid of disasters relatively quickly, and that was, I think, a good thing. But in the American system, they can't. And essentially, there is nobody who runs the Republican Party at any seniority who thinks that Donald Trump, and I know quite a few of them, is an even borderline credible president. But it doesn't matter because the people who vote for him, who are not active members of the party, they're just his supporters, turn out in the primaries and appoint him over their heads. My feeling uh, is that this is not an affirmation of democracy, but uh, a uh, essentially uh, a, a repudiation in the sense that it gives the ultimate electorate a choice between candidates, uh, uh, one or more of whom are just wildly unsuitable, but since they've got to choose one of the two and they're basically sympathetic to one side, they end up choosing a Republican who might well not be at the margin the person they want. Um, and that, I think, is something they have to think about. So the deep question is, who should choose the party's representatives in the, the House or the Congress or in the House of Parliament, and who should choose the leaders? And that is something that's been transformed in both cases in an ostensibly democratic way, and the result is not necessary to the satisfaction of the wider public. I mean, this is a pretty good refutation of the Whig theory of history. Clearly, things haven't gone in uniformly an improved way. Well, one of the things that I discuss, and it's a very deep question, uh, is the role and functioning and limits of constraining institutions of many kinds on democracy. Um, the, the, the obvious point, which is central, so just to make clear why there's a danger, if you have a political process which selects somebody with, let's be quite clear, wildly autocratic aims, and that person then becomes the head of government and state, and that person then uses the powers of the heads of government and state, which are enormous, to subvert the electoral process, you end up with a dictatorship. And that has been happening all over the world. It hasn't yet happened in a major high-income country, but I don't think they were all that far away from that in the US. And they, I don't think if Trump becomes president again, which is perfectly possible, that they will be all that way far away from it then. So what the danger is that the democratic system eats itself out from within. And most of the autocracies we now have have that characteristic. It's not a coup by the army or anything like that. Those are basically gone, even in Latin America. It's a, it's a hollowing out of the system from within and it's capture 
by a leader who has been dem democratically elected but then destroys all the checks and balances in the system. And that, to put it, I'm not making any other comparison. I'm not making any other comparison, let me be clear. But that's what Hitler did. Yeah. Now, you also talk in the book, and this is clearly related to what Hitler did in terms of running the German economy, you also talk about that evolution of autocratic leaders and government as being very damaging to a market economy. Yes, I think if we look at... So, one of the themes is, you know, capitalism as an economic system is quite protean, and it can be made to fit in with all sorts of political systems and will work better and well. It can be, you know, put in, in a very cuddly way with incredibly successful Danish economy. It can be, it can be American. And it can sort of be Chinese or Turkish, as it is now. I'm just choosing this as an example. But the interactions are very important. They affect how it works. So if you end up with an autocratic system, and there have been many examples, though mostly in developing and emerging countries, but Russia has become similar, you then tend to get something very clear. The legal systems are subverted by the autocrat because... What's the point of being an autocrat if you can't tell the judges what to do? So that means the, the protection of, since the autocrat controls the army and the police and the security service, all the other security services, anybody who's in business, however rich, is completely at his mercy, yeah. obviously, unless he escapes and owns property. So he basically has to do whatever the autocrat tells him to do, so he becomes a crony. And the autocrat's economic regime becomes crony capitalism in which either the existing plutocrats are made his tools or more often he appoints some of his own. And I don't wish to give you examples around the world, but I can give you an awful lot of examples, some of whom have been in the press quite recently, of people who have made immense fortunes because they're very close to the head of government. Yeah. This is not a very good way to run a competitive market economy, and it's one of the reasons why I think in the long run democracy works better, because politics is competitive. Now, the alternative system, which is really interesting, of course, well, I think we'll talk about later, is China's. Yeah. China's is the one fully articulated, institutionalized autocratic system, uh, whatever you call it, uh, and it, they have actually developed a sort of capitalism that goes with this. Uh, but it's become very obvious in the last 10 years, and indeed, in some senses, what she was about, that he thinks it went too far, that the capitalists got too rich in a lawless economy. It's an economy that doesn't operate with normal legal constraints. That means they get rich by bribing officials. Of course they do. We all know that. Everybody knows that in China. So the, uh, and he thinks that subverts the Communist Party. And because it's subverting the Communist Party, it erodes confidence of the people in the Communist Party big time. So we had this anti-corruption campaign and everything. So basically, he's been waging war against the capitalists for a decade, and it's got worse until just now when he's reversed it for about God knows how long. It's terrified the wits out of all the capitalists, and lots of them have left, and they've stopped investing, and all the investment now has been in useless real estate, and China's growth is slowing. So that's also a bad system, though they, he's operating within a very dynamic society. Um, so those are the that's the competition, and that's the danger we face, and I think we're already quite a way down that, chain, that path. Hello, it's Vass here, recommending you a new book from our friends at Firm Press. 
This May, the author of The Argonauts and other genre-defying, unclassifiable modern classics, Maggie Nelson, is back with a new collection of essays. It's called Like Love. The collection celebrates art, artists and thinkers including Prince, Bjork, Sarah Lucas and Judith Butler. Like Love is available to pre-order now in hardback, ebook and audio. So I wanted to ask you later about China, but let's do it now. Well, you, you brought this in in yes, a way with the autocracy yeah. point. So do you think that China can continue down this path? And how do you think it affects the way we in the West should respond to what we think of as the communist world? Well, there are two quite different questions. The first of which, uh, on which I'm quite clear, is that I really don't think anybody knows how China is going to evolve. I've thought about this. I've sort of, I'm a complete ignoramus in a sense, but I'm fascinated by the country and have been there basically once or twice a year for the last 30, and I have quite a few senior friends, but I wouldn't claim to know it at all. But if you look at the history, it can make extraordinary changes very quickly. And one of the most striking was from the Maoism of the early 70s to what Deng Xiaoping's did. It was a real, incredible transformation. And uh, I can say that after the Tiananmen uh, crime, uh, the, 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 the brutal suppression of Tiananmen protests, everybody thought reform was over. And that was actually the opposite of the truth. So I don't know what's going to happen. But it's very, very clear that the system is struggling with the question is how do we maintain the integrity of what we think of as that communist system with me at the top, in the case of Xi, while having a dynamic, progressive, internationally integrated market economy. And uh, I think they're struggling with this at the moment and their instinct at the moment, now for quite a while, has been to suppress quite a bit of the market system. Now, that creates all sorts of challenges for them in terms of sustaining growth and sustaining the popular appeal of the party, which has really depended on making Chinese people rich. There are lots of issues. But of course, in the meantime, we have a set of challenges because here is a, a communist China which has reaffirmed very strongly under Xi its communist nature it has become considerably more internationally assertive mm -hmm. because of its power. And that has created a reaction, particularly in America, which has a tendency towards Manichaeism, uh, to, view the, to, 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 to take the worst view. So relations are breaking down. And that's one of the, going to be, that is already one of the biggest challenges in our world. And I have a chapter which discusses what this might mean. And broadly speaking, I think we are uh, going to have to manage potential conflicts. We have to do so without ending up in war. We have to cooperate on major global challenges, not just the environment, which is obvious, but also development, where both sides are deeply involved. And we have to do so to do all this while preserving our basic economic and um, military security. And all I can say is it's an, that is a stupendous challenge, far more difficult on multiple fronts than the relationship with the Soviet Union because China is so inextricably intertwined. It's the biggest manufacturing exporter in the world. 
uh, with the entire world economy and has so many important trade relations. I just feel that no Western politician is really focusing hard enough on how much bigger an issue that ultimately is likely to be than Russia, though, of course, that rules out, assumes that we're not going to end up in a nuclear war. I mean, one of the books that came out at the end of last year, uh, Abyss by Max Hastings about the Cuban Missile Crisis, I think is very compelling in saying how dangerous it is to be in a world where two superpowers that don't understand each other or are nervous about each other could easily move towards nuclear war, partly because of pressure from the two sets of military yeah. people. And Taiwan is obviously the potential trigger for, for this. How do you think we should weigh this against the concerns of a purely economic kind where the Clinton administration, rather similar to the Brown-Blair New Labour administration here, wanted to welcome China into the world trading system and assumed that it could sit around the same table and work together to resolve some of those issues. This, these two things seem very different and the, the atmosphere around dealing with China that was there in the Clinton administration years has clearly been abandoned by both sides of politics in America. Well, the, I think the... I don't think that the decision to allow China to the WTO was a mistake, but the, uh, the terms on which it was accepted were obviously problematic in some important respects. And the most important was that there was no graduation procedure from its developing mm -hmm. country status, and we should have had that. The, the bigger issue you raise is, you know, and this is what frightens me, if I'm going to talk about this, is that after the Cuban Missile Crisis, we developed during the 70s and 80s, particularly the, a quite an elaborate apparatus for, for discussion with and communication with the Soviets. Uh, some of that was fraught, but nothing was ever as fraught as that again. Uh, and we sort of agreed what was not going to happen. So the, the fear of war really diminished rapidly, substantially, though the early 80s with the missile, inter, intermediate missiles thing was quite tough. My understanding, this is not my specialist area, of course, but in my understanding is similar relations with the Chinese military and security establishment do not exist. There is very little knowledge of their in, intentions. There's lots of provocations. And I think the chances of stumbling into war are, seem to me really quite high from what I read and hear. And the, uh, what we need to do is establish the limits on both sides on what can and should be done. I think it's reasonably clear what those are, that basically the status quo should be left de facto without getting involved in de jure decisions. And certainly there mustn't be a war because the consequences are simply unimaginable. Yeah. Well, let's come back to something more purely economic and less terrifying. Um, when you talk about, in the book, about the rise of populism, to put it in that general way, you put a lot of weight on the impact of the financial crisis. You know, other authors have suggested there are other sort of explanations, but... I mean, you make a convincing case, in my view, 
to saying that the financial crisis was fundamental to this. Could you talk a bit about that? So my, I have a fairly comprehensive discussion of the theories of why populism has risen. Populism, by the way, very helpfully, is defined in two ways in the literature. One is simply an anti-elite sentiment. And, uh, but the, the more profound one is what one great one author calls anti-pluralism. That, that the populist says not only that we're against elites, we're also against everybody who's different from you. And then you have a big problem because that's the point at which politics breaks down. And it's not very difficult to see what the difference and where politicians lie on that. Uh, I'm not just here. Uh, you know, I listen to the speeches of Marine Le Pen. So populism comes for, in the first place from a hostility to elites. Now, I think part of that is a long period, I argue decades, in which economic changes, some inevitable and some chosen, disadvantage relatively significant parts of our populations, most notably the industrial working class. And that was true uh, because deindustrialization was a universal feature. There were quite significant changes in income distribution, particularly at the top, um, and growth slowed as well. So the result of that is that the social position and economic position of the industrial working class transformed, as well as huge cultural changes, hmm. which I think became more difficult to accept as their status became more threatened. That was already clear by the middle of the early 2000s. Then papered over with the credit boom. This is Raghuram Rajan's, our friend Raghuram Rajan's view. Then the financial crisis happens. And that has two devastating consequences. First, most economic policy making is pretty remote from most people. They understand when interest rates rise, they understand something to do with people like you when you're at the Bank of England and so forth. But most of the time, these are just things that happen out there. A financial crisis is different. One, it's pretty obvious this is not supposed to happen. Two, it's pretty obvious who's responsible, namely bankers, financiers, and the institutions that are supposed to be in charge of bankers and financiers, apart from themselves, central banks and governments, right? And financial regulators. So they, these are the people in charge. They don't know what they're doing, do they? I mean, it's pretty obvious. You cannot have anything more demonstrative of the fact that the people in charge don't know what they're doing than a massive, monstrous financial... Then, to make it all worse, the governments come along and say, well, we're going to rescue all these people because otherwise it, we're in catastrophe land. So they, they put the entire balance sheets of the government at stake. They invest them, their taxpayer money in supporting the banks and that keeps all, even keeps all their bonuses, for God's sake. And in the meantime, there's defaults, house prices collapse, uh, unemployment shoots up. That doesn't last forever, but it's shot up like mad. And afterwards, then there's a third leg of it. The government says, well, we're broke now, so we've got to cut spending. And they say, well, we didn't do anything to cause that. That was you lot. Uh, um, and that then leads to the other huge thing, which I, have a, I think is the best chart in my book. 
So if you take the GDP per head of the G7 countries, the major seven countries, the US, UK, France, Germany, Italy, Canada, I'm sure I've missed one out, but anyway, Japan. So uh, Japan is sui generis, I won't go there. And you ask yourself the question, where is GDP per head in 2021? Where was GDP per head? The average relative to where it would have been if we'd continued the trend from 1990 to 2007. And I wonder how many people in this audience know where UK GDP per head in 2021 was relative to where it would have been if we'd continued the trend of 1990 to 2007 as we understood it. Well, the answer is it was 30% below. And that, by the way, is the second worst after Spain. It's even worse than Italy, but that's partly because its pre-crisis growth was already slow. US is 20% down. Uh So we are much, much poorer. And a lot of that than people expected, and we're much poorer than people expected after these mess that the elites were seen to have created. And then the austerity came on top of it, which meant that the most vulnerable in society suffered. We put these things together. I think it's miraculous that the popular anger isn't greater. So in the immediate aftermath of the crisis, I organized dinners at the Bank of England. And I'll ask the various people attending why people are not more angry, because they weren't that angry. Um, and partly it's because the measures taken meant that the rise in unemployment didn't persist for that long. But the point I tried to make at the time was, go back to the 1930s. After the Great Depression, there were two tremendous sort of revolutions in thinking. One was in economics, when the economics profession either debated very hotly John Maynard Keynes's ideas. This was clearly a period of intellectual ferment. And in the general political world, people would debate whether we should have a communist society. You know, you have books about communism is the right way for Britain or the market economy is the right way for Britain. These were big questions, big issues. After our financial crisis, the economics profession did nothing basically. There are a few wrinkles here, but there was no question of a, gosh, hadn't we better rethink how we see the economy behaving? And there was no real discussion of a radical political debate and agenda about what went wrong, what we should do. And the charts that you mentioned, these these figures about GDP relative to where it would have been had we not continued on the pre-crisis trend. I showed these charts when I was teaching in New York. And basically, the students would say, well, that's why we're taking the course. You know, I lost my job in the crisis. That's why I signed up for your course. And the anger, it was obvious to me, would come out over a longer period. And that's exactly what's happened. And that's been true all, all over the developed world where there was a banking crisis. And by the way... When I went back to look at this, and subsequent work has shown, there's uh, Alan Taylor, particularly, we, must, we both know, very distinguished British economist working in America, has done some wonderful research which shows that financial crises almost always lead to political upheaval. What is so depressing about this one, and I'm not sure I'm 
good enough to change this, is that instead of, well, we avoided you know, the fascist revolution, that's a good thing, um, or sort of, sort of. Uh, 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 you know, as I said, I really loathe Donald Trump. Let's be clear, he's not Adolf Hitler. So the, the, um, we had no real intellectual ferment. So the ideas that have come of God for transformation on the left essentially look like very old, old. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and perhaps the criticism of me is that I'm too old, old too. So we need, but there's really been not much except yeah. with the green stuff a bit, uh, which we could discuss. And in political terms, what has come out as clearly the strongest wave is a sort of anti-elite, anti-intellectual right-wing populism which is not as poisonous in terms of its, well, we, let's kill a few million people stuff. I'm very happy with that, uh, as the interwar period, but offers absolutely no relevant answer to any of the challenges. It's just changing the question. Instead of asking, well, we've got a system that isn't working for us, what do we do about that? Uh, as a coherent question, what should we, how should we be changing our policies, our programs? The political parties that have been successful and the movements have been successful basically said, we have no idea at all. Remember Donald Trump in 2022 stood for re-election with no manifesto. And by the way, that's basically what's going to be true of our two political parties in the next general election because I've talked to them, it's pretty obvious. They have no program. And the, to be fair, Biden has, so that is, I give him credit for that, and at least he's trying to do something, and I've largely supported it, there's action. There's actually been some action in the EU, but the basic response of the rising political forces, which are right-wing, right-wing populism uh, with an autocratic tinge has been completely hostile to policy as such. And that is really frightening because the danger is you then get into the Latin American trap, which is you elect somebody like that, he or she does nothing good for you, so you get even angrier and go for somebody even crazier, and it becomes a vicious circle between the left-wing extreme and the right-wing extreme, and the the country becomes destabilized. You have to have political parties with bold and coherent programs, which you can believe in when you're in a situation like this, and that's the one thing we are clearly not getting. Right, so my next question is that the book itself and your comments just now they're very trenchant, very persuasive critiques of so-called populist leaders. And I'm sure there aren't any populist leaders in the audience. Um, we're all members of the elite. And when we, you, Martin, you and I... I think speak for yourself, No, Martin, maybe. you are. Whenever you and I go to you know, international conferences or meetings, what you get, obviously, or everyone criticising the populist leaders, saying how dreadful they are, etc., but what advice would you give to the elites? Well, uh, that's, a, that's an interesting question because it's the, the question of how political reform, policy reform can happen. Um, so the obvious answer is there are two elements to this because there are many different elements of the elite. There have to be political leaders who are prepared to and able 
to sell new programs. And I, you know, I've become very, very convinced since I can't provide it at all because I'm hopeless. Um, that that's a miraculous talent which either you get or you don't. So I've actually become convinced, for example, that the world was unimaginably lucky that Franklin Delano Roosevelt came along in the early 30s. And it's very easy to imagine a world in which he didn't. Mm -hmm. uh, and his attitude to all this, we've got to make changes and we're going to make lots of experiments and some of them won't work. And in the British case, crucially, in avoiding the Great Depression, we had Keynes, and uh, his arguments and others got us off gold, which actually was the single most important decision we took. But that was quite revolutionary. We abandoned it forever. Yeah. You know, sacred pillar, gone. Yeah. Um, the, uh, so we need, you need leadership and you need politicians who ultimately accept this. But you also need ideas. I've tried to produce some, but I fear that mine are perhaps not radical enough. But I do think it's become really, and I, this is the difficult, it's become quite difficult in the sense that, and I can go to this in detail, but it'll take quite a long time, so I won't do it now, that the, the constraints upon us in terms of what we can do are different from the constraints we had in the middle of the 20th century. And if we're going to have a dramatic growth transformation, it will have to come from a, it has to be led by something technological which will radically improve our policy options. And the most obvious one is an energy revolution. Uh, and that's certainly, I think, Americans are right to go for that and invest in that big time. And I think we should be doing the same. AI, artificial intelligence is a two-edged sword. We don't know what that will do for us, but I think we're gonna to have to use it if we're going to get more uh, activity. I don't believe we're going to be able to sell degrowth or the end of growth as a political solution. I discussed that. But we, would, we have to do what we can to accelerate uh, technical progress, radically increase investment, both private and public, in our society, radically improve the institutions that support decentralization of political and economic power, and we have to take some gambles. I find that all very persuasive. I'll give you one example. You mentioned AI. AI could transform the National Health Service. Uh, it's not something that's been discussed in terms of how we organize the NHS. We simply talk about targets for money and people. That could be, it's not clear that's a sensible way to think about it. So there are, and energy too, but there are these big ideas that are not coming forward as the main platforms for our parties. And then I've got my own famous things. We've got to radically shake up the housing markets. Yes. That means the land markets, and we have to introduce yeah. a land tax, which I'm going to discuss on my column on Monday. The, the point I think that is crucial is if you look at it intellectually and politically, the politics of the democratic, major democratic countries has become quite unbelievably small c conservative. Yes. In policy terms, yeah. not in terms of rhetoric yeah. or, or, or uh, contestation or hostility or anger, but in policy terms, there's almost nothing going on. And if that continues, then I just don't see how anything good can come out of where we are. So I've got one last question before we throw it open. So get your questions ready for Martin. 
you talk quite a lot in the book when thinking of the cure, what we could do about the importance of trust in a democratic society, about how we interrelate to other members of the same community, in short about citizenship, and indeed the last chapter of the book is called Restoring Citizenship. Can you say something about what your view of citizenship is? Well, this is where my views have developed most or changed most or whatever in the process of writing this, which is sort of embarrassing in a way. I mean, the obvious point is because I took it for granted. Basically, as a young person growing up here in the 50s and 60s, I took all this for granted. What is a democracy ultimately? What makes it meaningful? Well, go back to the Greek city-states for all the limitations. Um, it's a community defined by where they live, because it's always territorial, who share and think of themselves as sharing a common destiny. We shared institutions, mutual responsibilities, which has included historically fighting for the country if necessary, in which you accept outsiders to join you, but they join you as part of this political community. And if democracy is to work, crucially, there has to be a loyalty to the the body politic as a whole, including its institutions, which overrides your loyalty to your party, to your side. Otherwise, every election becomes a civil war. And what you're trying to do in a democracy is precisely to manage disagreement and dispute without having a civil war. So to do that, you have to have, and sometimes you do get them, as we saw in America in the the 1860s. So to do that, you need to generate a quite deep sense of mutual trust around symbols, and there are lots of obvious ones about what the the shared history means, and that should be based as far as possible on reaching for truth, on the shared values that your democracy represents, Um, something that our predecessors would have quite comfortably called patriotism, but we'd probably call it something else now. Without that, you don't have a democracy. You have a civil war. And the many countries have ended up there. Um, and some countries are ending up there now with democracies, and mostly not in the developed world yet. But as I said, America looks a bit like this. So to do that, you have to restore a sense of citizenship. So I think quite a bit about how to do that. I, I, have some, I even have really, really wild ideas, like the idea that, well, maybe some form of national service will be required, not necessarily military. Maybe we have to rethink what we've let the media do. And as I said, maybe we can use uh, this wonderful institution, the jury, as a, mo- as a, as a template which, yeah. uh, around which we can build other institutions which help bring us together because ordinary people are more actively engaged in it. So I think we need to be quite radical about how we think about restoring that sense of being part of, uh, of one thing. And I also discuss how you manage immigration in this context. I understand this is the most explosive part, but I don't think we can contemplate restoring democracy without thinking quite hard about what makes us feel we're citizens. And I start, yeah. by the way, 
many of my lectures, and I have in it a fantastic quote from Aristotle, who was, after all, the first political scientist, and he has this marvellous quote from the politics, in which he says, essentially, is you can't have a stable democratic constitution without a thriving independent middle class. That's a pretty modern sense, and I actually thought more and more about that. That's what you need, and that's what we've been losing. Well, now it's the time for the thriving middle class in the audience to <laughs> put their questions to, to Martin. Now, we have two roving microphones. I'm particularly grateful you introduced the idea of the great man or woman in history. Very unfashionable among historians these days. But to have great men or women, um, like Keynes, you need that growth, that growth factor around them, that freedom, that middle class. And your last question started to answer my question. How do you recreate that middle order? Not the old-fashioned self-entitled middle class, but a middle ground of prosperity of small businesses that looked a bit more, perhaps like 1890s England or Germany, that broader spread, and make sure it's open as well to anyone who can rise into it. Okay, Martin. That sort of... I've got two huge chapters. How do you summarise it? Um, well, I think... There are many aspects to that. The one needs, uh, well, what are the, the obvious things? You need an education system which, and you need to put quite a bit of resources into it, which effectively gives everybody a chance of the education that will allow them to do relatively rewarding and sophisticated work and understand the polity in which they are, I think. I've become quite keen on the idea of restoring civics. Uh, second, uh, you need institutions that promote, that really make it easier for people to start businesses and start productive businesses. That's an aspect of the old Thatcher ideology I rather like. Uh, um, and we've really become very bad at this. We haven't, I mean, if you think of venture capital businesses, uh, the, the willingness of our great stores of, of capital, the pension funds, to take risks and in, invest. There's nothing there. There's no really dynamic public-private partnerships. There are some good things going on with universities, but that's not going to be uh, enough. You need to create a lot of dynamic businesses which are generating good new jobs, and to that you need a lot of dynamic businesses. In the British case, America has different problems with this, the really remarkable thing is if you look at our bigger businesses, they're all fantastically old. Uh, I mean, to be very, very blunt, the FTSE, which is our, the, the, the representative <laughs> of our major industry, it looks like a business morgue. And, the, and, uh, and so why is that not happening? And that has to be part of what you would think about if you wanted to develop a growth strategy. Um, there obviously has to be, as I said, much more public investment, uh, better infrastructure and all the rest of it. But I believe increasingly that we have to think of uh, whether we can create development agencies which will support uh, the decentralization agenda of the, what's called leveling up. I think that is something we should take, experiment with. The Germans, after the war, and thereafter had some really remarkable institutions, particularly KFW, uh, the Kreditanstalt für Wiederaufbau, which did a rather remarkable job. So 
You have to have a. You have to take some gambles of this kind. Uh, you have to make people believe things can change. I've talked about the housing market. That building things is really important, and uh, people are incredibly depressed, of course, about the expense of housing and so forth, which is also an obstacle to people moving and moving to jobs. So I think it has to be quite holistic. Quite a lot of things have to happen to make people feel greater optimism about the future, which once that happens, begins to become circular. And here, of course, I think there's a little disagreement perhaps, but I think we're going to have to undo quite a bit of Brexit. Yes. Another question? Uh, so my question is, uh, how do you envision the, uh, the application of uh, distributed technology and uh, artificial intelligence probably in the future of uh, economic policy making? For example, in a, in a, for example, in a blockchain-enabled uh, central bank and using maybe AI to, uh, to uh, optimize the, uh, the efficiency or the accuracy of the, uh, of the economic policy. Thank you. I think this is a question for Mervyn. Uh, <laughs> the, I, I am deeply skeptical of, uh, of well, we must be careful. I think the cryptocurrency thing is mostly nonsense. The uh, Bitcoin, irrelevant, economically. Um, people tell me blockchain is an important technology, uh, particularly for record preser preservation and record keeping on a distributed basis. I have no views on that at all, may well be true. But most of the discussion about central banking is, uh, I'm not sure whether this is where you're going, is about central bank digital currencies. Now, I actually am wildly enthusiastic about central bank digital currencies, probably for a reason that Mervyn will definitely not agree with, which is I want them to substitute for bank deposits. And if they do, then banking would actually have to do something useful rather than create money and blow up the economy from time to time, <laughs> namely actually become an intermediary, which is not what most of what they do. Uh, what they basically do is create money to, to finance property transactions, which is quite problematic. But I'm not going to go into that. What do you think about central bank digital currencies? So the, the, the question about them is, what is the problem to which they are meant to be an answer? And the first thing to say about a central bank digital currency is that it's not a currency. If the Federal Reserve were to issue one, it would be in dollars. Yeah, of course. have dollars. Of course. Ditto with the euro area, ditto with sterling. It's all about payments. It's a payment mechanism. It's a question, what's the right mechanism for making payments? Now, when people hear about CBDCs, the word that excites them is not central banks, because that's pretty boring. It's digital. That's what gets them going. And the trouble with that is that you need to have a good argument about why there is a problem at present. Most of the transactions we make today are already digi digital, whether it's your card that you swipe on a machine or whether it's going on your computer and making a payment to someone else, it will happen digitally. And the question is, what's wrong with that? Why is that uh, at risk? And I think um, th there's no good answer. People haven't come up with a good explanation of why they want to change that. Um, because digital is so exciting, they think we must be at the forefront of it. This is the government policy. We must be at the forefront of it. But 
when the lemmings are going over the cliff, you'd think some, some of them would have said at one point, you know, maybe this wasn't the wave that we should have been in the forefront of. This was one of the ones we should have stayed near at the back, which is where the Federal Reserve is today. Now, you could certainly try and make the payment system more competitive, more efficient, but it'd be an odd thing to do to have a state monopoly as a way of improving competition. Cross-border payments are clearly problematic because they're very expensive. Much of that is because of regulation. It's not at all, it doesn't follow that each individual central bank around the world creating its own digital currency would solve any problems in cross-border payments. That's got to be a system which links central banks together. Uh, that could be done without any of them having a digital currency. I think the answer to it is it, whether you want to use a central bank as the mainstay of the payment system will vary from country to country. We've got one of the most efficient and developed commercial bank payment systems. And one of the things I, I worry about is that you know, if you said, well, all, all retail customers will be able to have an account with the Bank of England, well, the Bank of England is totally incapable of having 50 million customers. We, could, we struggle with a few dozen, let alone 50 million. Um, and the idea that poor Andrew Bailey is going to be sitting, sitting at his desk answering calls from Mrs. Jones in Wrexham, <laughs> saying she can't log on to her account. Would he, uh, so you, you, it's a massive operation to provide bank accounts to every citizen. Uh, I don't see at present that the idea of trying to create a retail central bank currency has a lot of mileage, except in countries where their own banking system is not capable of providing an efficient method of making payments. But ours is, because you can do it digitally already. Uh, and as for a wholesale one, we've already got that. QE is essentially the operation of a wholesale central bank digital currency because the commercial banks have bank accounts with the Bank of England. And to my mind, the big question in this, which is not to do with digital currencies, it's a big question about the stability of the financial system, is which institutions that work as financial intermediaries should the central bank be prepared to supply liquidity to if they run short of liquidity? And we shouldn't leave it to a crisis to decide how much money we may need to lend them. It needs to have a proper regulatory framework under which the central bank will say you can issue short-term liabilities or deposits up to a certain point, but not beyond that point. And if you're willing to do it up to that point and not beyond, then we'll be willing to lend you the cash just like that at the drop of a hat, which was the case back in the 19th century before banks begot, became too complicated. So uh, the, the real issue, I think, where there's a lot to be said about it, is about the structure of our banking and financial system. And there are plenty of opportunities for changing that. But I don't think it's a digital currency issue as such. And indeed, you know, the bank and the treasury have launched a consultation on all this, but they haven't actually reported on anything, and they haven't actually produced any good arguments yet that suggest there's a specific need and role for that. So it's a classic case where all central banks are rushing to say, you know, we're in the forefront of this and we're working on it. Lots of people de dedicated to it. We're going to issue reports. But they haven't actually worked out why they're doing it.
Well, I'm more in favour than Mervyn, but this is a rather technical discussion, t taking us a long way from the subject. Um, uh, so perhaps we should we move, move on. on. Another question. Another microphone to another questioner, please. Uh, Tim Sumner, thank you very much uh, for the evening so far. Um, I was going to ask you the question of um, how you felt, moving, uh, Martin, sorry, about the um, balance between private ownership and public ownership and whether or not the increasing trend of private equity meant that uh, the general voters and, and the people in the population are disenfranchised or increasingly disenfranchised in our economy. And then I thought, well, that's a bit of a mouthful. Entirely by profit. Yeah, well, I think of private equity as a, as a leverage play on the tax system. Uh, I mean, it's very controversial in the literature whether they do much to improve the performance of companies. But if they are reasonably successful speculators, uh, given the immense fiscal bias, bias in our tax systems towards debt, since we subsidize debt in the tax system and not equity, which strikes me as mad, um, and I'm not the only economist who takes that view. I think you probably take the same view. The, uh, the, the result is that private equity is a very profitable way of owning a company because you've, you've loaded it up with debt. Most of the time that will work. When it doesn't, you get a sudden bankruptcy in this particular bit of your business, but it's all separate from the rest. And the, and the creditors lose money. The creditors write it off. Their public entities themselves, banks, and so forth, and move on. So it's a. But the people who clearly lose are the taxpayers because interest is all tax deductible, and it makes businesses more fragile. Because if you do get a big crisis, financial crisis, and suddenly the government comes along, interest rates quadruple for whatever reason. It would be a revert, you know, the inflation sort of thing we've seen. Suddenly interest rates explode upwards, uh, then a lot of these businesses will go bust and we're going to have a bankruptcy overload. So my view is for this problem, what we need to do, the most immediate thing to do, is to, to deal with the incentive of the, um, for, for, for generating debt in our system. And that can be done either by making equity tax deductible or, since we want revenue, by making interest non-deductible. And it's per everybody has known for about 40 years that there are better tax systems which don't have this characteristic. And I think you wrote one of the books on this, didn't you? Yes. Uh, in uh, Kay and King, classic work on the British tax system. So I do discuss some of these. Our tax system is a complete mess from top to bottom. And one of the things a sensible government would do is try and sort out the worst aspects of it. And this very strong incentive in our systems, all our systems, to generate debt with the instability that creates, particularly by generating and then maximizing the consequences of crises, is very, very damaging. And I've been arguing for a long time that we should change this, but of course there are lots and lots of very powerful vested interests on the other side, and so it's not going to happen. I think interest, I agree with all of that. Interestingly, the last time we had any major tax reform and a clear look at the underlying nature of the tax system was the late 80s with Nigel Lawson. And he wanted to move towards a much more neutral system in respect of different ways of financing things. So the idea that we've subsidized one kind of finance rather than another is disastrous because 
with financial transactions, you can keep going round and round the circle. And there's an almost infinite amount of money that you can make by exploiting tax differences in financial transactions as opposed to real transactions. And I remember, I, I won't say who it was, but I did try to persuade one Chancellor of the Exchequer basically just to go away for two weeks and take a team of people with them and say, look, think deeply about the structure of the tax system, how it can be reformed. If you want to set up a group for 12 months to do it, do that. Come back, make a speech, set the agenda, and this will be the agenda for tax reform for the next five years. And the answer why that could not be done, what, this goes back to your point on the media, was that I cannot disappear for two weeks because the media will be asking for comments, uh, statements every day. And I, and I said, well, that doesn't matter. And he said, but the opposition will be there the whole time. And I said, that doesn't matter either because they'll run out of things to say unless you keep commenting on it, in which case they'll be replying to that comment. And this inability to take a long-term view is absolutely endemic to our politics now. It's precisely why the... You know, if you look at the, if you come from, from Mars and look at the two major parties' manifestos for the next general election, you'd think they're pretty much identical. The politics aren't, clearly it's pretty abrasive, but uh, what you won't get is people going away taking a genuinely long-term view because they feel they can't. They've got to keep coming out with comments all the time, and this makes absolutely no sense. It, we need to go back to a time when the day after a general election the Prime Minister takes a deep breath and says, thank goodness electioneering is over for four years, now we can govern and think about it carefully. But Bill Clinton was the person who started the idea that once you won the election, the very next day you're campaigning again for the next election and doing down the opposition. And you have a grid which says, this is what we're going to do on each day for the next 65 days in terms of publicity for the government and we're going to pull the opposition into a trap. This is madness. This is a kind of game. And it does nothing to enhance or create serious policy debate. There is one other problem, which I can state very briefly. When you've got a zero-growth economy, any tax reform will create losers and winners, roughly equally matched. There's no positive-sum yeah. game here, at least in the medium term, and the losers will scream. And so, I you know, one of the things we should have is capital gains on owner-occupied housing. I'm sure none of you would like that. <laughs> but it would be quite a good idea. <laughs> now, we've got time for one last short question, please. Absolutely. Uh, Rafa Ulipera, thank you for a, a fascinating conversation. I had a question going back to the um, initial um, case that was put forward that we can both save global capitalist rule-based order, as I understand, and democracy at the same time. But if history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes, then aren't we in a cycle where deglobalization and strengthening of the nation states is the way to strengthen domestically democracy, and with the strengthening of democracy we can then start opening up again. So it's not that we can do it all at the same time, but we go in cycle when one is strengthened, undermines the other, until the equilibrium is reached. I think that's an interesting way of thinking about it, and that's why 
my motto in this book is never too much. So it's about rebalancing. Um, I think it's obvious that we're going into a period in which the state is going to become more important and the nation state is going to become more important. That's self-evident and that's partly because of all the international friction we've been talking about over China, the great power rival, and it's partly because of this need to restore the domestic compact. But, um, I wrote a column about this which recently, which I still think is sort of relatively sensible. The problem in the past, when we've overdone that, when we overdo the opening to the world and free markets, we get problems, it's absolutely clear. But the problem with the closure process is it has historically been associated with really massively destructive international conflict, a complete destruction of the economic system, and then a total breakdown of international relations across the board. So the, the great period of deglobalization in our history, in the modern world, was of course from 1914 to 1945 which was a progressive period of deglobalization and de-democratization, by the way. It didn't strengthen democracy. So my answer to you would be, be really careful what you wish for. You, we need to change the domestic bargain. That seems to me pretty clear. But we need to change the domestic bargain Without, and that's a central point in my book, without blowing up the whole world. And particularly as we now have nuclear weapons, this is no longer a metaphor. So uh, those of you interested in this sort of thing really have to be engaged in trying to manage what we do at home to deal with our very real problems while maintaining a basically orderly an integrated and cooperative world so far as we can. And I would say, as an intellectual matter, not as a political matter, which is different, it is possible to do both without blowing up either. I don't think trade was the main reason for our problems. In fact, I think it's very clear it wasn't. International finance is less clear. I'm perfectly happy to, to tax international finance. That will be relatively simple from my point of view. I mean, Politically, not economically, by the way. But if we make this attempt to restore democracy into a war of all against all, then we're going to be in the most terrible trouble. And that's, a, that's why I, that's a very important part of the way I argue we have to do it through domestic policies, which are seen to be relatively neutral vis-a-vis the world as a whole. And that's aside from the big ideological and other conflict which we have talked about. We cannot repeat what we did in the early part of the 20th century and we need to be really aware of that. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time to draw this discussion to an end. There is one exception to the motto, be careful what you wish for. You want this book. <laughs> and Martin, Martin, will be, Martin will be signing books uh, outside in, in a few minutes. Buy one for yourself and buy several for your family and friends. Yeah. <laughs>
It just remains for me to thank you all for coming this evening, and especially, of course, to Martin for his most illuminating and fascinating remarks. Thank you. This episode of the podcast starred Martin Wolf and Mervyn King. The producers were Esme Bright and Nicole Wong, and our editor is John Doughty. If you missed him, do check out Nouriel Rabini's episode of the show from just a couple of weeks back. And there is plenty more politics coming up in London in person this spring. Timothy Garton-Ash on Europe, Mariana Mazzucatu on the consulting industry, and Peter Frankopan on how climate change has shaped human societies. Find out more on our website. Till next time, I'm Vash Christodoulou. Thanks for listening. <laughs>